So my name is Mark Duffield, and I'm the worldwide tech lead focusing on semiconductors for AWS. And um, speaking with me is Simon Burke, who's standing off to the side here. Um, and today we're going to cover um, scaling EDA workflows on AWS. Um, so really what, I'm, what I would like to do is go over some of the, the details of building out architectures on AWS uh, with respect to EDA flows and with respect to the, the semiconductor industry and really set it up for Simon. So the idea is really to, to have Simon dive into his architecture uh, and really uh, have, uh, have him walk uh, have him walk you guys through his journey, uh, where they're at with their architectures, and some of the next steps, and and um, some of the problems, and and some of the some of the things that they've seen along the way. Um, so let's dive straight into it. Um, there's the abstract, just in case you needed it. So um, this is what I'll cover. So uh, EDN AWS. Um, so really looking at the instance types, some of our storage options, uh, some of the the architectures that we have out there now. Um, and then I'll also touch on a few customer use cases, and then we'll have Simon come up, uh, and he'll cover again his uh, AWS journey. And then lastly, and uh, hopefully there's time, um, I did want to touch on a few of the deployment tools and methods uh, and some workshops that we have that are uh, out there right now. Um, so these, we're at the very bottom session here, um, but just want to let you guys know, we had uh, five sessions here uh, focusing on uh, semiconductor and EDA, um, and uh, these are all going to be accessible after reInvent. I'm sure you guys know all this, but just to, to reinforce this, um, if it wasn't a recorded session like this one is, uh, we will have at least a slide content out there, which includes uh, the workshop content as well that uh, we actually just wrapped up about 45 minutes or so ago. Okay, so EDA and AWS, and um, how, do we, you know, how do we get there from here? So um, Amazon and, and AWS, uh, you know, we're, we're a fabulous semiconductor company, but we're also doing other things, you know, uh, with respect to EDA flows and with uh, respect to semiconductor and HPC. Um, and this really shows that line of going from one side to the other. And, you know, EDA is obviously focusing on, on design verification. Uh, but we're also pulling from our devices team. Uh, when, you, uh, when you look at uh, Lab126, Amazon devices, that's where we actually pulled a lot of our workshop content from. So uh, a lot of the work and the, uh, that we're doing internally in AWS, we're taking all those learnings and all that experience and we're uh, handing that off to our customers and helping them run their workloads on AWS. Um, so where does that put us with the flow? And so everybody here, I'm sure, is, is familiar with, uh, with the IC design flow. Um, how do we actually look at this in a way that we can start moving workloads to AWS? Well, it starts with actually looking at the jobs, right? It starts with looking at what are the, what are the characteristics of the job? What are the requirements? Um, what are the IO profiles, right? Uh, is it going to be small files? Is it going to be large files? Is it going to be sequential? Is it going to be random? Um, uh, what's the memory size of those instances, right? So it's really about breaking this all down. Uh, and we use this as a guide, you know, with our customers to try to figure out, okay, where should we start? Um, and what we're seeing a lot of right now is on the advanced node um, and uh, sign-off. So um, STA and back-end runs right now we're seeing a lot of customers uh, look to AWS 
you know, as they're growing, as they're um, going again to advanced node, uh, maybe making a bigger chip, um, a new chip, whatever the case is. Um, but um, the size of these uh, jobs is increasing and um, that those back-end flows, because you're able to move the data, because you're actually able to, uh, to move things a little bit more compartmentalized, it really allows for a really good fit on AWS. So this is a, a traditional, um, and maybe not traditional, but this might be a typical um, uh, EDA stack when you're looking at the infrastructure, right? So at the top there, uh, first thing you do is you have the user, uh, almost always connecting with remote, a remote desktop session. And then you have servers, right? So those servers are going to be for license management. They're going to be um, for uh, directory services. They're going to be schedulers. They're going to be all the infrastructure, everything that you need uh, to get the job up and running. But then you also have the compute nodes, uh, where, you know, the farms that are actually doing your compute. And then at the bottom there, you obviously have um, uh, shared file systems and all the data that you need. And I found the clicker, so here we go. <laughs> um, so if we look at this and we translate over to AWS, uh, again, let's start on the right side, right? Let's think about how do we actually get data into AWS. And there are all kinds of ways that we can enable this transfer. Uh, but let's just think about, well, uh, you have a direct connect or maybe a snowball unit uh, that you're transferring that data into AWS. Um, but once that data is there, now you can start really thinking about how are you going to scale your workflows? How are you going, how are you going to take um, efficient use of AWS? And those, those um, uh, that I should say from, from the previous slide, you know, that, that traditional stack is, is not going to look that much different, right? You're still going to have a remote desktop session. You're still going to have the license server and the schedulers. And we can really build out the architecture so your users are seeing an environment to which they're very used to, so which they're very comfortable with. Um, they don't have to change their flows. Or if there is a change, it's, it's going to be fairly minimal. Um, and then, of course, you have uh, all the servers and all the compute that goes uh, underneath all of these jobs. Um, but now it's enabled with auto-scaling, the idea that you're spinning up infrastructure only when you need it, that you're spinning up resources only when you need it. You, you, as soon as you're using it, as soon as you're done using it, uh, all of that infrastructure is uh, taken down and you're only paying for what you use, right? And then of course we have, at the bottom there, we have uh, shared file uh, storage. And if you did have the need for local cache or other file systems that you need for local cache, we have all kinds of, of options there with respect to data and data movement. But on the left side here, um, this is where we, we start to, to try to get customers to think big, think differently. Uh, now your data is in AWS, and now you can start really leveraging and really uh, uh, deep diving on all the other services that we have, right? Machine learning and analytics, you know? Um, thinking about a data lake, right? So really thinking about once your data is in AWS, once those flows are there, really trying to think about how you can actually optimize those flows and, and really uh, um, have an efficient flow. And to that end, um, we're asking our customers, again, to, to really think big. Um, so rather than having an engineer, and um, this is my, my favorite example. So, you know, uh, so many times engineers are, are going to wait for the end of the day um, to kick something off, or maybe a weekend because it's an eight or a 16 hour run. Uh, we want engineers to think completely differently. We want to think, okay, well, 
let's have this run for 30 minutes or let's have it run for 20 minutes instead, right? And so rather than waiting for the end of the day, you run it over lunch, right? Or maybe you run it while you go get a cup of coffee and you come back and now it's handed off to the next person or to the next step of the flow, right? So that's, that's where we want to, to, to have engineers be thinking, thinking about the idea, what if I had a million cores? What if I had my own supercomputer that I can run on to run my, my jobs? And so most of you in the room are probably familiar um, uh, with uh, Annapurna and Annapurna Labs, but this, this is a little bit about uh, the journey that we had, right? So uh, when we started our silicon teams before the acquisition of uh, um, Annapurna, uh, those teams went to their managers and they said, I need this many servers, you know, I need 500 servers, I need uh, this much data, I need this many top of rack switches, I need this many racks, whatever the case is. And the response back was, how would you like to have 10,000 servers in 10 minutes instead, right? So the very journey that we're asking our customers to go through, the very journey that we're helping our customers go through, we had to go through that journey ourselves. Um, and so now, you know, you can, as you can see in this slide, we're, everything has been moved over AWS, right? We're running all of our workloads on AWS. Um, and of course, there was, there's always going to be um, some, some difficult parts to, to any transition like this. Um, but again, this is where we start to really think about, okay, how, how, can, we, how can we think big, uh, but then also take all those learnings about thinking big and then pass those on uh, to our customers as well. Um, I won't uh, spend too much time here, mostly because I think the slide is way out of date in the last 48 hours. But um, the you know the, the the key here is is the the massive infrastructure that AWS has, and we're actually building our custom hardware for that infrastructure. Uh, so the silicon that goes into all of these products is actually made by our own silicon design teams, right? whether that's into a compute server, whether that's a storage server, uh, whether that's into the routers. Um, and one of those chips is uh, AWS Inferentia, uh, which um, is, a, is an AI chip. Um, to be honest, I don't know, raise your hand if Inferentia was GA'd at reInvent. It was? All right. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, we're, we're continuing to look at, at new projects. We're continuing to help our customers and respond uh, to those customer suggestions and recommendations, and this is definitely one of them. Um, and also, of course, we just announced Graviton 2 uh, uh, with Graviton here uh, coming out last year, and then Nitro was actually released uh, way back in uh, 2017, and the Nitro system is a, um, a specialized piece of hardware that offloads all of the uh, the services that we're typically running and on, the, on the server itself and taking up a bunch of resources, we've completely offloaded onto a separate piece of hardware and given nearly 100% of the resources uh, of, the, of the instance itself for customer applications. And all of these chips have been 100% uh, developed on AWS from RTL to GDS2. So again, we're pulling from all those learnings, we're pulling from all those um, you know, uh, mistakes and examples, and maybe we're testing on beta hardware internally, whatever the case is, and we're handing all of those learning, learnings off to our customers.
So now let's talk about specific instance types. So in this space, and um, Simon's going to do a great job of diving in, into his architecture, but in this space, we, we really try to stay prescriptive. We, we don't want to give you all of our instance types. You know, we don't want to put up a, a roadmap of instance types and say, you know, here you go, have at it, and go through iterations of these. What we really want to do is be as very prescriptive as possible, right? And a lot of our flows out there, a lot of the customer flows that we're seeing out there start with the Z1D. Um, this is hitting the sweet spot for a lot of the applications. So uh, the memory to core ratio, uh, 16 gigabytes uh, to a physical core, uh, but it also has uh, a very high frequency, right? So it has a four gigahertz sustained uh, processor. So now you're talking about license optimization, right? So this is one of the instance types that we definitely offer or we uh, recommend uh, to, to start with first. And if for some reason you, you needed a, a bigger memory footprint, uh, total memory footprint, the memory ratio on the R5 is the same. So you're still 16 gigs per core, um, but the R5 has twice as many processors. So it has a total of 768 gigs. And what we found with this instance was that Customers that were previously running uh, some of the workflows on the higher memory um, uh, instance types that were previous generation, the R4s, uh, which only had uh, 488 gigs, it seemed like it was just below the threshold uh, for a lot of, uh, app, you know, app, I say a lot, but it was mainly STA that we were seeing uh, that um, wasn't quite hitting that sweet spot. But when we went to this instance type and we got the 768, we saw customers responding more frequently and saying, actually, that's the, the memory footprint that I can work with. It's the size uh, instance type that I would definitely like to use for these workloads. So again, uh, the R5 is, uh, is something that we're seeing definitely on the, on the back end and can be used on the whole flow, but it just uh, it depends on you know, your particular case. And if you need even additional memory, if you need more than 768, we have the X1, the X1E. Uh, you're talking about uh, two gig, uh, excuse me, two terabytes, four terabytes. And if you need even more than that, we have uh, higher memory instances um, that go all the way up to 24 terabytes. Um, and some of those are, um, you know, depending on your workloads, depending on what the case is, um, you know, we can discuss offline exactly if that's something that, that fits into your flow. And also, um, the accelerated instance types, uh, right? So in this case, it's the F1, which, uh, which is using the uh, FPGA uh, that is from Xilinx. And a lot of customers are doing some of that initial modeling and testing uh, using this instance. And uh, we also have uh, some tools out there that are available on AWS that can get customers up and running very quickly. Uh, so we have what's called if you're familiar with an AMI, an Amazon machine image, we have something called an AFI. So it's an uh, Amazon FPGA image um, that allows customers uh, to use through the marketplace an AFI that's already made. So if you, uh, if you have a, um, a partner that made a particular uh, image design or uh, image processing software that you know that you can use, you just go out uh, to the marketplace, you pay for that AFI, and it's loaded right up on your FPGA, and now you have this accelerated workload very quickly. Um, and you can do the same for yourself. If you have a project that you know that others would find useful, you can make your own AFI. 
A quick mention here about the bare metal instance. Um, so uh, we get a lot of questions about, uh, well, I, I need to have, or I, I shouldn't say need, but a lot of customers are saying, I, I really would like to have the bare metal instances. I know that this is gonna be something that's going to require bare metal and what have you. Um, it is something that you should consider. Uh, and it is something that if you think that your tool is going to perform differently, it's definitely worth the test. But the differences that we see, uh, you know, between let's say a Z1D or an R5 and metal, and you know, metal versions of those, um, it's usually in the one to two percent. You know, either way, good or bad. And so, what we're seeing is that the the time, you know, the amount of time it takes to actually boot the instance, and the flexibility that you get there uh, with a hypervisor, um, it's it's you know, it's not really sure if it's it's worth actually going to the bare metal instance for that trade-off. So it's there. Um, if you think that your application may be able to benefit it, um, please do test with that. Okay, uh, so I've covered uh, a bit about compute, um, a bit about our own story, uh, getting to AWS, um, or sorry, excuse me, our silicon teams moving to AWS. Um, and then uh, let me touch on uh, a little bit on, on storage. So uh, storage is, you know, data movement in this space is, is Question two, right after, is my IP secure, right? So, um, so it, it, you know, the idea of trying to move all kinds of data uh, from on-prem to AWS and back and forth, uh, it, it, it can be a very difficult task and, and it can be very daunting when you're looking at the, the entire picture. So we really ask our customers to try to break it down, right? Think about um, the amount of data that they can get a POC running or the amount of, of data that we only need for just an STA run, right? So this is the storage portfolio that we have, right? So um, when you're looking at block storage, so block storage is EBS, um, but it's also instant store that's actually physically on the instances themselves. A perfect case when you're looking at um, potentially building out your own um, NFS file server or if you have local data that you know that you need just for that instance. Um, but then um, we like customers rather than thinking about um, you know some some of the products that they've been uh, on for quite a while uh, we write we really like customers to think about some of the managed solutions that we have. So thinking about elastic file system, thinking about FSX for Lustre. We have one customer that moved over to AWS and just by switching over to FSX Luster, they saw a 10x improvement on their workflow. Um, and uh, EFS uh, definitely suited for uh, certain workloads and certain I.O. profiles, so very functional. Uh, our internal teams are actually using everything that you see on this, on this slide. So uh, this, the storage question and which storage options to use is something that you should have uh, a really deep dive discussion with your solutions architects and your account managers. And of course, there's Amazon S3, um, which opens up, again, all kinds of options from data lakes to archiving and all kinds of great stuff there. And so this is you know, where we see uh, some of the tools actually fitting. Um, so uh, we're talking about persistent versus temporary and read-only, um, uh, write-only, read-write, or excuse me, read-only or read-write, um, and thinking about, well, where can I fit uh, some of the managed components is it worth the additional effort to maybe stand up my own uh, storage solution uh, to get something up and running? Uh, we find that uh, using a managed solution, uh, particularly at the beginning, um, just to get something up and running is actually a, a really good uh, first start. And 
Um, uh, talking about data movement now, back into S3 and S3 archive, where FSX Luster will hydrate the file system from an S3 bucket, uh, and then um, uh, moving that data back and forth as needed. And then trying to bring this all together, covered compute, um, covered storage, and now thinking about the scheduler types that are out there and what your, what your uh, customer, or excuse me, what your engineers are using. Um, we support LSF, UGE, Altair, um, but we also can bring a custom scheduler in as well, right? Uh, free scheduler. So, uh, you know, I don't think that we've had a scheduler that we have that I haven't seen work. Every you know everything that's out there, um, there's there's going to be some potential nuance, whatever the case is, but um, we're, we should be able to schedule your orchestration and scheduler. And then a quick uh, call out here for a, a nice DCV uh, for remote desktop simulation. Um, biggest thing here is is that it is included on AWS. So uh, this is very similar to no machine or VNC or any kind of remote desktop software that's out there. But if you're running on AWS, it's included. So all you're doing is paying for the underlying EC2 instance that uh, DCV is running on. So I'll touch on a few customer use cases. So really uh, exciting use case here uh, with Astera Labs. Uh, so uh, Jitendra had, had come to us with a, a great idea and um, built out his entire infrastructure on AWS, and we helped him do that, and he was able to tape out an entire SOC on AWS. We heard from ARM earlier th uh, this week. Uh, this is a great example, you know, looking at hybrid and the idea of moving ED uh, EDA um, to AWS on the hybrid platform. Um, so really exciting to see this workload and really exciting to see um, uh, uh, companies and different workflows uh, moving to AWS like this. And then we also heard from MediaTek, right? So this, this huge STA run, right? So 1,000 AWS instances, 32 physical cores, uh, eight petabytes of data between Taiwan and US. Um, and uh, all that led to the world's first 5G SOC announcement. So Really exciting stuff going on right now at AWS, and we keep on seeing more and more customers uh, move these workloads to AWS. So with that said, um, I've touched a little bit on a bunch of things here, but I'm going to hand it off now uh, to Simon and have him cover uh, the Xilinx journey. There you go. Thank you, Martin. Yep. So can you hold AMA okay? Awesome. So, um, Xilinx, first of all, my name is Simon Burke. I'm a CAD architect at uh, Xilinx. My job is to take a great idea and evaluate whether it actually works and then turn it into a production flow that our design team can use to tape out chips. The end goal is to tape out chips. Uh, that's what pays the bills, so that's kind of what my team does. Um, if you haven't looked at FPGAs in the last 10 years, I would encourage you to go look at the Xilinx website and see what we do. 10 years ago, you either knew you wanted an FPGA and you knew all about them, or you didn't know what they were and you didn't care. Um, today's FPGAs are really systems on a chips. We have GPUs, CPUs, uh, hardened DDR controllers, PCI Mac controllers, uh, lots of hardened IPs, network on a chip. It really is a programmable system on a chip today with some FPGA that you can use as well compared to the uh, field programmable products that we had 10 years ago. So if you're not sure what um, FPGAs are today, go take a look. You'll be surprised, I think. So in terms of um, how do you do this, first of all, 
If you want to say, I want to run the cloud, what do I need to go do? Uh, I would say that probably the biggest issue that you'll find is as you run stuff and as you start to uh, evaluate whether you can move a flow to the cloud, you will run into problems. It's not uh, going to be just plain sailing. Um, when you run into those issues, it will not be clear whether it's an EDA tool problem, um, a fab problem or a tech file problem, uh, your inter internal flow, or whether it's something to do with Amazon. And what you'll find is there isn't one person in your organization that has all the knowledge of all of those domains in their head that you can go ask what's wrong. Uh, you end up having to coordinate between those different groups. So getting a good program manager that can go do that and getting the right people in those companies together so you can go figure out where a problem is, uh, is essential, otherwise you just won't make progress. So yes, having that coordination is something you will need. Just plan it up front. Don't wait until you need it. Uh, you will need it, I can guarantee it. Um, in terms of uh, how to use it, um, this is kind of some background stuff for uh, uh, you to understand what the use models are. Different people have different definitions. These are mine. Um, really, I see three different use models for the cloud in my peers and other companies. First is the all-in model. Um, it's very common for small startup companies to go do this. Uh, some of the EA, EDA vendors also provide a cloud service, which is really an all-in model. Uh, what it means, you move the storage, the compute, all the infrastructure onto the cloud, you run entirely on the cloud, and when your job's finished, you tape out the chip from the cloud. Um, from a technical perspective, it's probably the easiest environment to set up. Um, and there are a number of companies out there that will give you a turnkey solution that you can go pay some money and they'll just make it all work for you magically. So technically, that's the quickest path to get running on the cloud is the all-in model. Um, you will find for small companies, um, it's, it's a great option. Uh, medium and larger size companies, um, Xilinx will be one of those. Um, it's seen as a risk to put a whole product on the cloud in an entire environment that you didn't know anything about before. Uh, that is perceived as a company risk. So whilst it's technically easier to do, the profile risk is considered to be quite high. Uh, somewhere in between is a hybrid model where I have, I have 12 projects. I'll run 11 of them on-prem in my traditional flow and I'll move one of them onto the cloud and see how it goes, a, a test vehicle kind of thing. You can pick the low risk project that if it slips a little bit, nobody really will care too much and see how it goes. So it's really the all-in model, but in a, in a smaller scale. And again, a lot of companies will do that to kind of put their toe in the water, see if it works and what happens. Uh, the first model is the one that's technically the most difficult to implement, but has the lowest perceived risk from a corporate perspective, and that's what Xilinx is doing. Uh, Burst model says, I want an infrastructure on-prem where I can run my jobs, and when my capacity on-prem is exceeded or, or maxed out, I want to overflow into the cloud. Um, some of the constraints there mean that the flow that you're running has to work on the cloud just the same way as it works on-prem. You really don't want to have a different flow on the cloud to the on-prem flow. The cloud team will hate you forever. Don't do that to them. Um, it does mean that you have to make the cloud environment kind of look like your on-prem environment to some extent, so that your flows see it as the same world that they're running in. Um, the other issue is data storage, is how do you get stuff from on-prem to the cloud in time to run the job and then get it back in afterwards. So there are some technical challenges there. Um, makes it more interesting. Uh, however, from a project risk perspective, it's probably the lowest risk that the corporation will see because ultimately it just says, well, if it doesn't work, I'm just maxed out on my internal farm and just continue to run maxed out. My job will pend, but they will run and they will finish. So you do have a easy format plan, which is I'll just run on-prem the way I was used to. So there's a different risk and technical challenge aspect to those three models that it's worth considering before you dive in. And as I said, Xilinx has chosen uh, to pursue a burst model. Um, the upside for us is if we can make burst work, uh, we can also make the other two models work because they're subsets of burst. So you make that work and everything else just kind of falls out of the, the pie. Um, 
So there's some, there's some good and bad about working on the cloud. The good uh, side, which nobody really talks about because it just works and it's magical and it's fantastic, is um, the networking on the cloud is awesome. It just, it's fast, it's reliable, it just does what it's supposed to go do. It's way better than our on-prem on network, in my opinion, but it's reliable, it's what Amazon does every day and they make it work well. Uh, the compute is also generally better than what you'll buy on-prem. Typically, when you buy servers, you have a lifetime of two, three, four years, take your pick. So you've got a mix of one-year-old, two-year-old, and three-year-old servers in your farm, and if you have to get the three-year-old server, it's gonna be slower than the one-year-old server. It's just the way it works. Uh, you go to Amazon, and they churn their hardware over much quicker, you get really fast servers. So uh, in terms of just pure compute, you can expect traffic on the network to be quicker and execution to be generally quicker because their CPUs run faster and they have a lot of them. So those two things work really well. The challenges uh, are really around, uh, in my opinion, storage and cost. Uh, storage, um, as, as Mark mentioned, there are a couple of options on Amazon. EBS is reasonably fast. Um, however, it's, only, it's not a shareable storage, it's assigned to a single instance. So it doesn't look like an NFS mountable drive, which is what most of the EDA flows are expecting. Um, most of the Amazon instances, the ones you would use anyway, also have NVMe drives on them, which are super, super fast, but again, only accessible to the instance that you're running on. So yeah, if you can localize the job, great. But that isn't the way most of your EDA tools will have been written that run on-prem, and they want to run the same as on-prem as on the cloud, so not an option. EFS is shareable across multiple servers, and it has some performance challenges. Um, you can see a very significant degradation in runtime performance running on an EFS shared drive compared to your on-prem NetApp or wherever you use. Um, FSx Luster is something Amazon's been working very hard on to address this gap. It kind of fills in the gap between uh, EBS and EFS. Um, again, uh, there are some trade-offs there in terms of um, how you, you know, enable it and, and roll it out, but it addresses a lot of the technical issues, potentially. Uh, the flip side of storage, though, that you have to bear in mind is cost and security. Um, you are putting a large amount of data on the cloud to run your jobs. For us running a typical VCS job, um, because our flows were not written to be efficient on the data they read, it's just like the data's on, on, the, on the land. I can get to it anytime I want. So you pick little bits of data from all over the place on multiple file servers. It has a very large footprint of data that it wants to see to just to run. My single VCS job requires today close to 200 terabytes of file system to be available for it to run. It's not reading 200 terabytes of data, it's reading about 1% of that. Um, but it needs that file system to be available to run. Uh, you can go figure out which bits and pieces in the file system you need and just copy those over. Uh, but that's a really tedious task to go do, and you don't get to do it once. You get to do it every single time um, because the bit, the 1% of data that's reading is a different 1% each time. It moves around just slowly, but it moves, it wanders. Keeping track of it is just a real pain in the ass. Um, so there is that aspect to it, and just storing 250 terabytes of data on an Amazon environment permanently is, there's a cost associated with it. Go look it up, you'll figure it out. It's more than I can afford. Um, the other aspect of it, which is a perception, not a reality, is around security. Um, in general, my opinion is that the data security on the cloud is as good or better than you have on-prem, simply because uh, on the cloud you can limit who has access to the data more than you can on-prem. You can set it up so only jobs that go through queue go to the cloud and people don't log on and your data is secure. Uh, but there is a perception amongst all of your engineers that it's insecure because it's not on-premises anymore. You can spend an awful lot of time talking to those engineers about how that's not true and try to convince them. Um, eventually, you just fall into the fake news bucket. Nobody believes you anymore. Um, or you can just tell them, it's ephemeral. The data's only there while the job's running, and it goes away afterwards. It's a much easier argument to have, because then you just move on and go and have lunch and 
and hopefully get some beer. So um, storage is tricky both from a technical perspective and I wouldn't say real security, it's the perception of security, which is a real problem, but slightly different from real security. Uh, I also say uh, storage falls in two broad categories. These the large semi-static read data. There's tools, it's binaries, it's IPs, it's views, it's all that kind of stuff. It's typically a very big file system, but very sparse access. And then the actual workspace data, where the job's running, uh, you tend to get a very lot of uh, read-write access to that particular small space. And if you're running a lot of jobs in parallel, they'll all be trying to bang on the same kind of file system. Uh, so you do have these two very different workspaces that you have to go deal with. For Xilinx's perspective, um, we've used a system called um, PeerCache from ICManage to address this. Um, it has a couple of features that we like. Uh, one is um, it's a virtual file system so that when we turn it off, all of the data on the cloud disappears. So it's ephemeral, which addresses some of the security concerns that we have. Um, it's an on-demand poll, so when someone requests a block, it gets copied from Xilinx Prem into a local cache and gets served to the application. Um, it's block-based, not file-based, and that's actually a big difference for EDA flows. EDA flows tend to read small sections of large files quite often, so copying over just the block it's reading as opposed to the entire file does make a difference to the performance. And the other thing is it uses the NVMe drives as the cache mechanism, which are essentially on the ECS, EC2 instances that you already have, so they're free. Um, which means you're not paying an extra storage cost somewhere else on the side, it's already on the machine that you're already paying for. And it's ephemeral when the instance goes away or when the job finishes, the data disappears. So that's the solution that we've chosen to pursue. Um, it's not the only solution, it's just what we're using. So um, I would say just from a storage perspective, um, computer networking, very good. You do need POSIX-based file management and that can be challenging for hybrid and burst use models specifically. So you do have to figure out how you're gonna address that problem upfront. And uh, again, it will fall into two broad categories. There's these large semi-static read data and the smaller dynamic workspaces. And they have very different IO profiles and requirements. So you may choose one storage solution for one type and a different one for the other type. So consider those two separately. They're not the same category of problem to go deal with. So again, uh, we're using um, the same virtual file system for both semi-static workspace storage and the, the large and the smaller dynamic workspaces. It does work for us. Um, it is a different use model, but um, I would, again, I would look at all the solutions in the context of those two different namespaces and decide which one works for you. So storage is one, one thing that, in my opinion, is a challenge on the cloud today. Uh, something you're gonna have to think about and decide what works for you. Um, and I've talked to a number of peers in the industry who are doing cloud enablement similar to Xilinx, and um, I think they're all doing something different. I don't know of any one company that's doing the same solution, so there is a lot of subtleties in there in terms of what works for me. Uh, I would say there's also a lot, not uh, very good visibility into what all the solutions and options would be. Um, the other key area beyond storage is around cost management. Um, and uh, you'll find that Amazon has a lot of infrastructure and tools to tell you what the bill is at the end of the month. Um, and you can go tell who spent the bill and where it all went and profile it up, up the Azure and produce nice charts and all that good stuff. Um, but at the end of the month, you still owe them money. Um, and one of the things that uh, I received a lot of pushback from my design team is uh, they wanted to do proactive budgeting, not retrospective paying the bill which means that uh, they want to allocate a budget to certain teams and flows and say, this is what you're allowed to spend that month. And when you've got to that limit, you are not allowed to run on Amazon anymore unless someone changes the, the budget. And then at the end of the month, we go ask Amazon how much should we spend and we reconcile it all and make sure it all adds up. 
So uh, what we do, and again, this fits in nice with the burst model, which is when a job is submitted, well, first of all, we ask, is it eligible for the cloud? Can you run the cloud, or is it just a flow that we haven't qualified yet, so you get to run on-prem? If it is eligible for the, cl the cloud, the first thing we ask is, in the, is the on-prem queue full? Because if a gut machine is sat there doing nothing, and we've already paid for them, uh, you might as well use them, because it's free. So if we have capacity on our-prem, we just run the job there. If the internal queue is full or close to capacity or there's some other limitation that means we don't want to run on-prem, then we go ask if that user and or the group has budget to run on the cloud. If they've already exceeded their budget, uh, they don't get the option. It just goes on-prem, it sits in the queue, they pend, they go talk to their VP, it goes and talks to finance and gets more money and puts in the budget. Um, the last one is and this is uh, important as how you do the prediction. Uh, we have a profile database that, that keeps track of previous jobs and we use it to predict how much a job is going to cost. Um, when a job gets submitted, you don't want to find do they have enough budget, but do they have enough budget including the cost of this job? And then we adjust the budget with the cost, the predicted cost of the job immediately and then let the job go run. That way when the second job comes in, the budget's already maxed and they'll redirect to on-prem. When the job is finished, we go find out what it actually costs as opposed to what we've predicted, take away the predicted cost, add the actual cost in, and then we have a new budget. What that means is you end up with a little bit of noise in the budget number. It's accurate to one or 2% in any point in time and, and figures itself out over time. Uh, so there's a little bit of noise in there. It just means that we can close, uh, approach the, the actual budget number we apply. It may go over by one or 2%, but then we can lock it off and that group gets to run on-prem from that point on. So costing is important. We didn't find a good third-party solution to this. Everyone was willing to tell us what the bill was after the fact, after we spent the money. Uh, we didn't have a good way to do this up front. Uh, what we did do is we created our own solution for doing cost prediction and cost management. And we use, uh, we intercept, in our case, we use LSF, so we intercept the BSUB call to decide where the job goes. And depending on whether it's a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down, it goes to the cloud or it goes to on-prem. Um, so there's some other considerations you gotta be aware of. Security, I don't think it's really a showstopper issue today. Security on the cloud is very good. Um, as all the companies I've talked to that have been doing the same thing as Dust, done the hard their IT's audit the cloud security environment and come up with a thumbs up that says it's good enough. So from a realistic perspective, security is not an issue. There can be a perception of a security issue versus a real one and that can be just as problematic. But in reality, security is not a showstopper issue today. EDA vendor licenses, even when the EDA vendor vendors say, yes, we'll allow you to run the cloud, just getting your licenses modified or your legal agreements modified to enable you to do that can take an inordinate amount of time, even when everyone agrees that that's what they want to go do. So yes, you would need to plan that up front and start talking to your EDA vendors about, uh, can I do this? Uh, the way Xilinx does it is we host all the licenses on-prem on an on-prem server. We access them via our connection to the VPC and pull them into the cloud that way. Um, it does mean that we have to have amendments to our legal agreement that says any license that we host on-prem for a certain vendor can be run on the cloud as well. It takes time, go do that. Similarly with IP vendors, uh, they get really nervous when you say, we're gonna put your IP on the cloud. Um, they want to know, did you do a security audit and blah, blah, blah. And then the thing that really takes time is modifying the legal agreements to say you can go do that. Lawyers have no rush about them. They, they see rushing as a risk and they don't want to. So EDA vendors and IP vendors are the two that you need to do upfront. Um, again, become best friends with the IT organization and the cloud vendors. You will need them, I can guarantee it. Um, take them out for beers, buy them coffee, do whatever you need to go do, but you want them to be friendly too, otherwise you just will fail. And um, I hear a lot of people saying, we go to the cloud to save money. I don't think that's true. Um, moving to the cloud is not a cost-saving exercise. If you're going into it from that perspective, um, don't waste your time, don't bother. What, what it does is um, it gives you agility and scalability. And 
put that into context specifically, what, the problem that we have all the time is, uh, obviously you get to the back end of a project, you're trying to get close to tape out, you get surprises because it's engineering, it's the other synonym for engineering is, be surprised. So you will find you'll have to do additional runs and additional verifications that you didn't think you had to do before. You didn't plan for it, it just comes up. You can go to the EDA vendors and give get peak licenses from them and have them on-premise same day. Super quick, especially if you organize your you know, EDA um, contracts uh, appropriately. So you can get licenses to run the jobs very quickly. What you can't get is a machine to run the damn thing on. It can take you easily two, three, sometimes four months to get a batch of service in, plumbed in the farm, configured and ready to run a job. Um, typically that's way too late. Uh, so you end up in this unfortunate situation of having to predict hardware needs uh, to deal with surprises when you don't know what the surprise is. And if you could just say, I just, I'll buy one type of server and it'll cover all the flows, that doesn't work either. Some flows want a lot of CPU, some want a lot of memory, you don't get the two of them together. So you have to know what type of hardware to go buy. Um, where the cloud will give you a benefit is being able to get peak licenses the same day and then be able to burst overflow into the cloud on peak hardware the same day. That's the agility you get is to mitigate a tape out slip, not even to pull tape out in, just to stop a slip happening. And it isn't gonna save you money, it's gonna save you um, any costs anywhere. It's gonna give you the ability to not slip a tape out and to manage your schedules the way you originally intended. That's the benefit, ain't gonna save you money. If you do save money, that's great. That wasn't our focus, our goal. Um, so uh, just to summarize what we are doing, um, our use model is burst. We are using ICMPA cache, virtual storage for both the semi-static and the workspace data. Uh, typically for our compute, we use C5Ds for the default server, and we use Z1Ds when someone says, I want a turbo button and I want it to run faster. They do cost more, uh, they do run faster. Um, our experience is they're around five to 10 percent five to 10 percent faster and around 30 percent more expensive. So there's a premium to get the 10 percent faster. Uh, so don't make it the default. We don't make it the default. We make it the, you should know what you're doing when you ask it for you're gonna, because as a user, you're gonna go pay the bill. Uh, Z1Ds give you um, a reasonable amount of memory, but you do find that a lot of EDA flows today kind of settle around the 512 gig or 640 gig memory footprint. That's kind of what they want at the SOC level. Um, those don't fit in the Z1 family, so you end up going to the um, R5s or the X1Es. Uh, R5s are really good for larger things like um, SDA and the X1Es are really good for things like EMIR and the larger physical flows that just consume gobs of memory. So you'll use a range of instances, you just have to go figure out what flows map to what instances and how to, uh, how to go do that. Uh, Q, we use LSF, uh, including LSF Connect for instance creation and cleanup. Um, I would say it's not perfect. There is no perfect queue. All the queues that I've looked at today were developed on-prem for use on-prem. They do work on the cloud, but they weren't designed to work with the cloud, so they have limitations that you've got to be aware of. Uh, particularly tracking runaway instances, they can rack up dollars very quickly, and, um, and they're kind of transparent. They just kind of sit in the background and ghost your bill. So there is some stuff you have to go do to track those kind of issues. Um, I do want to do a call out to Alta's uh, uh, network compute. They've been doing an awful lot of work on their queue to optimize it for cloud usage. I think that's the only one that I've seen them doing a lot of R&D in that direction. We don't use it today, it's something we are looking at. So I think that looks promising. Um, network, within the cloud, you just use the cloud's network, it's good. Um, we spent an awful lot of time looking at um, how do we get from Xilinx to the cloud, and there really are a couple of options. One is a VPN over the internet, and the other one is Direct Connect. Um, everyone wants to use VPN because it's easy and it's simple and it's cheap and it doesn't work. <laughs> um, it almost works, which is the annoying part. Um, the problem is the latency that you get. Uh, EDF flows tend to be very latency sensitive. 
Uh, they were designed to work on a WAN. They got stretched to work in a, in, on a LAN, sorry. They got stretched to work in a WAN environment. They don't like working where you've got latencies that exceed typically 500, to 500 milliseconds to a second. Um, if you use a VPN, you'll see latencies. We've seen latencies all the way up to 30 seconds. It doesn't happen very often, but they happen long, often enough that you will see an issue for it. And they're a pain in the ass debug because you see an odd issue happen every two, three days. Um, I've talked to some other companies that have been having the same kind of issues and the same kind of results. So a direct connect will cost you more. It's more difficult to set up. Your IT team will hate you for it. It's what I would recommend you go do. Uh, licenses, we host on-premise and we serve to the cloud. Um, you don't have to be aware of what type of job you're running when you go do that. Uh, we have seen some flows that just work fine. Uh, we have some spy shops, for instance, that run really quickly. They, they're typically in the two, three, four second range. The time to get the license exceeds the runtime and your overhead becomes significant when you go do that. And I'll show you some data results later that uh, highlights that problem. So yes, in general, we run on-prem, but I can see certain tools where you will also want to host them on, on Amazon as well. EDA vendors don't allow you to do duplicate licenses, so you've got to split your pool, 80% of them on-prem, 20% on Amazon, and do cross-referencing so that when one runs out, you get the other one. It's kind of a pain in the ass, but it works. Uh, Architecture-wise, um, cartoony diagram, so you can kind of see what we do and how we do it and why. Um, so typically on the Xanax side, uh, we use uh, Peercache as a holodeck server that looks at all your NFS file systems and packages them to be sent across to Amazon. We also have a number of MongoDB and SQLDBs that stay on our side. And typically we use NetApps for our NFS file service and those feed into the Peercache holodeck. On the Amazon side, uh, we have a Peercache tracker, which is the first level of cache that provides the virtual file systems. The second level actually runs on the compute instance itself uh, using the NVMe disks as a cache and uh, exposes the file systems on those as essentially they look like they're NFS mounted file systems to you. You can look at them, LS, DS, cat files, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we also have a couple of, we use ICMange as our database server as well. So we have a proxy server that we run there just to do, do some caching to offload the, uh, uh, the any network issues between Xilinx and Amazon. Uh, you will get variability. It's good to hide some of that with caches if, if you can. So that's really uh, what we do in terms of uh, how much we do we push up there. It really depends on um, the type of job that we're running. Uh, we categorize our jobs. Uh, most EDA flows uh, tend to be uh, memory limited more than number of CPUs limited. The job says, I want 512 gig of memory. They don't say, I want 12 CPUs. So uh, we characterize our jobs by memory footprint. Our defaults are C5Ds um, for kind of the small jobs. Uh, we do, do use R5s for stuff that requires 512 gig and 640 gig. Um, I have R4 in here. We've moved to R5s for the larger footprint machines. And we also go up to X1s for the, the stuff that's a terabyte and, and higher. Um, what's interesting to what we do anyway is we look at the spot cost versus the on-demand cost ratio. Um, one of the issues with Spot is, the good thing about Spot is it's way cheaper than on-demand, so you can save a lot of money. Uh, the downside is Amazon can go take it away when they want it. Uh, what you want is a Spot machine that you can keep for as long as possible. And if you go ask Amazon, what's the keep rate of these things? Uh, they either don't know or they won't tell you or both. Um, what we have observed, though, is where the Spot cost is, is low compared to the on-demand cost, uh, Amazon tends to have a lot of those machines, so we tend to lose them less often. So we look at the spot versus on-demand ratio, and when that falls below 20%, we'll say we'll use them. When it's above 20%, we typically don't. Uh, that's just a gut feel, pull the number out of my ass, and feels like it works for us, but that's what we do. 
Um, also in terms of workload, uh, we have this little kind of four quadrant chart that we have that says what the job restart cost is versus the duty cycle. Job restart cost really is if you're running a 48 hour job and it dies in, in hour 47, the restart cost of that is really quite high. You've got to restart it and wait another 48 hours to get your answer. Kind of pain in the ass. If it's a one hour job and it dies three quarters of the way in, you're only an hour away from getting the result, you just restart it. So low on the left axis is really short jobs. High on the left axis is very long jobs that are expensive to restart. Uh, restart cost is not just time, it's also the cost of the license that you're consuming to rerun the job. Duty cycle is a little bit more vague. Duty cycle is um, how, how frequently or consistently you run this job over a period of time. If you were to look at uh, running EMIR, for instance, at the full chip level, um, if your project lasts a year, you're typically only running that for about the last two, three months of the project. The first three quarters of the year, you're running smaller blocks. They don't need that size of memory footprint. It's only when you get to the end, when you're on the full chip, where you need that memory footprint. Uh, so if you're running three months out of 12, your duty cycle is 25%. Whereas if you're running consistently through the entire year, like if you're running block level SDA, that's 100% duty cycle, you're running all the time. So if you do duty cycle versus job restart, you'll see that uh, the top right corner, uh, where you're running the jobs constantly all the time, and where the cost to restart a job is high, you just run it on-prem. It's the safest thing to go do. Um, but as you start looking at the restart cost, okay, if in the machine when it got taken away from me, I can just run the job. When that falls down to a certain threshold, it makes sense to run spot instances. You can afford to lose the machine and not kill yourself uh, from an overall productive perspective. And then there is this other category, which is the upper left, which is, yes, the restart cost is high, uh, but we don't run them very often. Full chip EMI is a good example of that. There you can do it on demand because you're guaranteed to keep the machine for the duration of the run. Uh, and you're not using it for the 12, 12, 12 months, it's only for a short period of time. So uh, that little chart will tell you kind of what type of instances to use where. Um, so the problem statement for us is really, uh, we want to run using the Amazon environment, but we want to run using our internal flows as much as possible. Um, we have uh, targeted VCS as um, the initial target because that's the thing that peaks on our queue most often, and it's a natural thing to move over. Uh, we're also interested in backend flows. Um, uh, Synopsis Primetime and HSpice is one of the uh, flows that we targeted to go look at and use. Um, I'm going to skip over the problem statement. Uh, suffice to say that timing capture within Xilinx is not a traditional SDA run uh, that you would normally see in an ASIC world. Um, it's more like critical path analysis. Uh, we have to capture the delays on a bunch of net segments and feed them into our database. So it looks more like critical path analysis than regular SDA, which means we actually do a lot more runs. Uh, we also use um, Alta's uh, flow tracer tool to manage our flows. Um, it just it makes seeing what's going on a little easier for us to track. Each little box corresponds to a job or a task. Um, whilst we currently run Alta on-prem, we don't run it on Amazon. We do have some of those boxes that will push um, those sub-jobs into the Amazon queue and then um, in general pull the results back. So in terms of what do we see? Um, if, we're, if you run something like Primetime, Primetime just screams on Amazon. I don't know why. I'm not going to complain. I'm just going to take it and say thank you very much. But yes, uh, what would take us 61 hours to run on-prem, we can do in 34 hours on, on Amazon, almost 2x speed up. Um, and it's a combination of network and um, uh, IO read time and just, uh, just compute itself. Spice went completely the other way. What took 61 hours on-prem took 115 hours on Amazon. And this is because we run a huge number of really small jobs. The jobs are typically three, four, five seconds. The time to get the license from the Amazon premise and bring it back before the job actually runs is a significant part of the Amazon runtime and not on-prem. So you see it slow down. 
uh, which means that for a five second run, it can take us an extra five seconds to get the license. It will take a little bit. Um, I've broken it down by uh, PT on-prem and, and PT Amazon, so you can kind of see that um, how you run the job and what type of job it is. Also, how it is variable. The speed up can be, it's not just 1.9x, sometimes it's parity and sometimes it's much faster. Um, what you're running and how you're running, it does make a big difference. And in terms of um, uh, test cases, uh, we tend not to run the entire chip because just capacity won't fit in the memory footprint. And cloud vendors tend not to have very fast, large memory machines. Uh, what we actually do is this uh, MSOC flow, we call it, where we shrink down the size of the, the design by pruning out just the parts we care about until it fit in the memory footprint, then we run that on the cloud. It's a more efficient way of running on a fast server. Uh, correlation, do you get the same answer? Um, yes. Uh, we ran it there, we ran it on Amazon, we ran it on-prem, we compare the numbers. Uh, they're within the noise floor that we expect, so yes, the, the data comes out the same. Correlation's good. Uh, so from a, just a high-level con uh, conclusion, uh, we are currently supporting VCS verification flow in burst mode on Amazon. Uh, our goal, though, is to be able to take an on-prem flow and run it on the cloud without significant changes to the flow, just as it is. Uh, what we do see is every time we transition and run a flow, we do see issues and we have to modify the environment a little bit to work with that. Those modifications are not in the flow, they're in the environment underneath the flow to make it work the way we expect. They tend to be compatible with all the other stuff before, we just see new problems, we don't see old recurring problems, but running one flow will not cover the entire space. Every time you run a flow, there'll be a surprise and you have to go deal with it. Um, the timing flow that we have here is a proof of concept, not a production flow today. Um, it's a, if we do this, what would it take and how can we go do that? Uh, we are working towards uh, pro productizing this flow, but the data I share today is uh, proof of concept data, not production data. BCS is production. Um, what it does demonstrate is we can take an existing flow on, that runs on-prem, and today it's not a huge effort for us to transition to running on the cloud with the environment that we have today. Um, there is a lot of work to enable that to happen, but once you've got there, moving flows up is really typically aligned with what you would qualify when you make a big change to a flow, you have to requalify it. It's of that order uh, in terms of requalifying Amazon as to when you do a, a signal enhancement in the flow in terms of the retesting process. There's not uh, any additional work beyond that type of, of validation. And I do want to say thank you to uh, TSMC for letting me do this. Uh, synopsis for enabling to run all their tools on the cloud and making that process straightforward, both from a support perspective. They're doing a lot of work on debugging binaries and giving me updated binaries to make things work better on the cloud than they did before. So kudos to them for actually uh, putting their toe in the water with R&D and making things work better than the initial runs did. Um, Amazon themselves will give me a cloud environment that works. IC Manage will give me all the Pcash stuff. And Xilinx will let me go do this stuff because it's fun and exciting. Enjoy doing it. Uh, so I'll be around if you have any questions, but for now I'm going to pass over back to Mark to finish off. <laughs> no. Thank you very much. Sorry, I was wrong. Thank you. Can you, can you guys hear me? Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Simon. That's awesome. It's it's always so interesting and fun to look at raw numbers and data and architectures like that. So thank you for that, and really excited to continue uh, working with Xilinx and Simon. So um, real quick, and I know we only have a few minutes left here, but uh, just going to go uh, through a handful of slides here to uh, give you some indication, give you some ideas for how you can actually do everything and uh, move your architectures and workflows over to AWS. So uh, we just had a workshop on this. It completed right before the session. This is scale-up computing 
on AWS. This is an official AWS solution. Uh, we could come in, we could do a workshop, or you can walk through the material on your own. Uh, we also have uh, an LSF workshop out there that you can use. So if you have flows that are dependent on LSF, you can definitely use this and be up, to, uh, be up and running really quickly. Um, if you're looking just for a GUI um, uh, enablement, you just have a tool that's, uh, that needs um, a remote desktop, uh, this workshop will get you up and running in about 30 or 40 minutes uh, using nice DCV. And actually, as an example, it uses the Xilinx Bravado tool. And lastly, last week, right before uh, Thanksgiving, we released a blog post on this. And this is a, a decoupled serverless scheduler uh, that leverages uh, AWS step functions and Lambda um, and really um, uh, looks at scheduling from a different way. Uh, the idea that all you need to do is submit uh, files and a job uh, command file to a folder in an AWS bucket, and that will run the job for you. Uh, all of these, uh, we can come in with solutions architects um, and do an immersion day, a workshop, what have you to have you up and running really quickly. We also have uh, white papers. We have a lot in flight there as well. And that was content from last year. And that's all I have. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, definitely looking forward to, to helping you. Any questions you have, I'll, I'll be out, uh, down here in the front for a little bit. And hopefully you guys have had a great reInvent. Replay is in a little bit, so hopefully we'll see you there. Thank you.